Noah, I'm so happy to have you here. You. And this is your dog, Shemesh. This is Shemesh, yeah. Which means sunshine. It does. Um, Noah is the contributor for the Washington Post and some other outlets. What are the other outlets that you contribute to? So uh, the Guardian, and then in the past, the New York Times, Fortune Magazine, and uh, Israeli one called uh, Haaretz, okay. uh, and a few others. But Very cool. So I want to hear the story about the dog, because I was told that it's a good one. So Shemesh here actually has a good personal story that reflects this, like uh, Oliver Twist, but the, the sort of broad-based story about the, the breed, it's, uh, this is the uh, Canaan dog. It's probably mixed with like a collie or something, but yeah, the Canaan dog probably has like the best origin story of any dog that I, I know, uh, that I know of pretty much. Um, so basically this dog they think was the, the one that's mentioned in the Bible. And if you see like the Egyptian hieroglyphics, you can see there's a dog that looks very similar to, mm. to this one. He's got his, his pointy ears. You can't see it right now. He's got a bushy tail that kind of, kind of curls up. And, um, these were the dogs of the ancient Israelites, the, the Jews, uh, in the land of Israel. And they were used for herding and guarding, and they're just sort of like the all-around utility dog for those people at, at that time. And when they were exiled by the Romans just after the time of Jesus, mm -hmm. um, you know, the Romans like didn't let people take their stuff with them when they exiled them, and uh, that included dogs. And so these dogs became like ronin, you know, like the, the uh, Japanese samurai when they lost their masters, they just were made to roam the, the southern deserts uh, of Israel mm -hmm. and became semi-feral. Sometimes were co-opted and adopted by the Bedouins, uh, a nomadic people that live uh, still in southern Israel. Mm -hmm. And um, around the time of World War II, there was a woman, uh, Rudolfina Menzel, and she was well known in Austria and Germany for training dogs for police, for the military, and then... Um, she and her husband had moved to Israel because of the, the Nazis and, 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 and that situation. <laughs> and uh, so she saw these dogs in the south and they were sort of, they were in the south, they were in the north, they were sort of these street dogs. And she, um, she was a Zionist and she, beyond that though, she recognized the potential for them and that they were these very highly intelligent dogs because they had to survive by themselves and by their wits and by their instincts for 2,000 years. And she trained them. And she trained them because the, uh, they call them Yishuv, the, the, the communities of these, these Jews that were there were vulnerable to attacks by the, uh, the Arabs. And then the, they found that these dogs were really good at guarding the settlements and alerting them when those attacks were happening. Mm. And um, so that is what she did, and she named it. She actually gave them the name Canaan Dog. And now they are the national dog breed of Israel. That's very cool. I didn't know that there were national dog breeds. I'm not sure I did either, but I feel like now there's like a national version of everything. National flower, national dog, national... Uh, I feel like I mean, it's like a marketing thing, you know? It's like, so, yes, these became the national dog of Israel. And I assume now they're pretty popular in Israel, like you see them all over, or...? Yeah, that's the interesting thing, is it's a really interesting situation of like arbitrage, in a sense, because mm -hmm. in Israel, there's a kind of like, not to offend people who have chihuahuas, but like chihuahuas, you know, they're sort of like all around and everything, and like cool and this and that, but like, not... You, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say unique, special, out of the ordinary, this and that, but then um, here, obviously, they, we don't really have... Look, there's some. There's some breeders here of that mm -hmm. have Canaan dogs, but certainly not like Labradors or, or, or Chihuahuas or something like that. So in Israel, yeah, they're seen as sort of like street dogs and treated poorly, by the way. And, and I, I do want to mention this, that like they even have documentaries um, mm -hmm. over in, in the Middle East because it's not just Israel that they're. They're, you know, Jordan and I believe mm -hmm. Egypt and Syria and even... Um, further east, like I think Iraq and, and things like that. And um, 
the culture for dogs in that part of the world is not really great. It's not the same as, as we've seen them here. So they, they're subject to a lot of abuse, um, mm -hmm. which is uh, also probably plays into their like survival instinct and how they, and how they act. So, yeah. So Shemesh came from Israel, right? He did. He, like I said, he's got this, this Oliver Twist story. So I, it's my girlfriend, Anushka. So it's uh, really, it's, it's her dog. I mean, they're sort of like one owner type dog. So he's, he, he puts up with me. But uh, so she, um, it's a great story. She posted, she like wanted a dog, you know, and she went on the Facebook group and she, you know, some kid found him running around three months old in a part of Jerusalem. And she said, um, you know, bring him by the house, we'll see. And she basically took him like, not sight unseen, but she, she said she, she saw him. She's like, he's coming home with me. All right, you know, no questions asked. And, you know, they checked to see if he had a chip and if he was someone else's, no. So she got him and um, yeah, he, you know, he's a, the, he's a wild man, but you know, he's, he's a good boy. Yeah. Oh, and anyway, so the rest of that story is that, yeah, she had him and then uh, she brought him. He flew over here. So he like, grew up on the streets of the, the rough streets of Jerusalem. <laughs> and then he flew on an airplane to, to Los Angeles. And now he lives in Los Angeles, which, uh, you know, sometimes the other people, he, he grew up in a rough neighborhood. So they're not always, you know, you can give people not a fear, but like he's playing a different game than some of the other dogs in, in the area. But, uh, but he's figuring it out. You know, he's, uh, he's adapting to his new, his new life. So your girlfriend is from Israel as well. Mm -hmm. How frequently are you in Israel? So, uh, eh, like, there was a period of time a couple years ago where it was like every two months, every two, three months. Uh, uh, but now, it's the last time I think was back in like April. So I would say like semi-annually, basically at this point. Okay. And you were in Israel before reporting on the war out there, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about that and what the story was? Sure, so I was based in Israel from 2012 to 2013, and there was, uh, actually two weeks after I got there, there was a, it, it's funny, it's a, a war and operation, and then there's sort of like an ongoing state of conflict yeah. over there. Um, so this was, I don't think they call it war, it was like an operation. Okay. Right? And so this was the one at the end of 2012, and yeah, I, like I had just bought a ticket and then like, decided to have this adventure and report and like convinced an editor to just kind of read my stuff and see what happens. And then two weeks later, there was like a war. And uh, like rockets and sirens and this and that. And uh, it was definitely like a shift. But the crazy thing over there is that like they'd have the sirens, right? And it's like, ooh, like a really, like, you get, like it gets you, and you, you know? Yeah. But for them, like I remember seeing it at a cafe and the, they had the siren. And then the people at the cafe were complaining that like, why isn't my, my order here? <laughs> like I understand there's a siren, but like, why isn't my food here? You know? And so it's, um, it's a different because mentality. Because it was commonplace? Or yeah, I mean, the rockets, I can't say were commonplace, but just like living in that sort of state of things where it's like an active, like, I, we are not going to let this disrupt our daily lives. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they had, at, you know, at that time, even uh, Iron Dome. So they felt safe mm -hmm. that the rockets weren't necessarily going to land in Tel Aviv, which they gave, I think in Tel Aviv, you got like eight minutes, eight minutes, maybe not eight minutes, like two minutes, which was like a ton of time versus like in the south in Ashkelon and Sederot, you got like 10 seconds. And I was down there also during mm -hmm. that time. And that was... That, down there, they weren't so much just sitting at cafes and hanging out. They were, like, going into shelters. So. Okay. All right, so you have to forgive my ignorance because I know very little about Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. Um, can you just sort of give me the broad brushstroke picture of what's going on there currently and how that's come to be through, like, years of religious... Oof. <laughs> Oof. All right. Um, 
Sure, sure. So currently what's going on, and, and it's hard because the, it's, it's definitely not a, a homogenous situation, depending on the different regions of Israel, if we're talking just specifically about the conflict. So you have the Gaza theater of action, and then you have mm -hmm. uh, the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, and then you have um, the northern border, Lebanon and Syria, and beyond, and so in, in Iran, which factors into all of them. So um, what I can say currently what's getting the most attention, certainly in the last few days, is what's gone on on the Gaza border. Mm -hmm. And so what happened in Gaza, I, I guess like the fastest way into understanding Gaza would be, which it's hard because like there's no fastest way to understand <laughs> everything over there. So um, there was an uptick in intentions, you can say, um, with uh, rocket attacks from Gaza and then responses from the Israeli Air Force mm -hmm. to there to stop those rocket attacks. Um, but of course, even that's going to be controversial. Some, you know, it's like this cycle where it's like, no, it was the attacks of this, it was attacks of that. But this was actually started, um, and again, it's like, where do you draw the entry and where do you draw the exit? But this was, this current thing was started. There was an Israeli operation in Gaza and they were, try you never know the truth of it, but they were trying to like quietly get some information about someone or kill someone and they ended up killing a, a Hamas commander who's mm. there and Hamas is in control of Gaza at this point which dates back to 20, 2006, 2007 when they had elections and they took it over from the Palestinian Authority which is the one that's in charge in, in Ramallah that's supposed to be controlling the West Bank which dates back to Oslo. So it, you can see it's like a constant <laughs> thing there yeah. but basically Hamas which is a terrorist organization recognized by every Western and I think beyond Western country as a terrorist organization but they are the de facto sovereign controlling entity mm. in Gaza. And the Israeli military went in quietly and things, I think, went wrong and they killed that commander and I think five or six other people. And then one of the Israeli soldiers got killed and then they got out. And then this led to this like back and forth. Um, and basically people thought, observers thought, everybody thought that it was going to turn into a full-blown war. I mean, the Israelis moved like tanks there and soldiers. And usually when they do that, it's like a buildup and called, I think they called reserves. And um, But... The, they went right to the brink and then sort of dialed it back. And there's a lot of reasons for why that may have happened. And and I think it's, though, it's an interesting um, example because it shows that a lot of times the decisions, it's not this like religious conflict and that that's the grounding impetus for everything that goes on there and everybody hates each other and this and that. I mean, people are acting from mm. deep self-interest. And so, for instance, what happened in the wake of the Israeli government deciding not to go into Gaza, you had the defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, resign. He said, basically, this is a failure of the administration to take decisive action, and people are going to die. For sh they're going to get short-term benefits, but long-term, it's going to be a problem. So he resigned, and then they thought there was going to have to be like snap elections because of that. And um, just today, you know, then you had another um, politician over there who people also thought was going to resign and potentially replace uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the prime minister, and then his name is Naftali Bennett. And then he said today, basically no, no, I'm going to stay in the government and we're going to try to figure this out anyway. So that's kind of from the Israeli side. And of course, there's lots of economic reasons and other security reasons for going in or not going in and, and this and that. So I know this is like an all over the place answer and even things that are like supposedly or seem like, you know, simple this and that, it, it's not. And there's, there's so many okay. different factors. And so a lot of people have confusion because it's confusing. <laughs> there's like a lot of moving parts. Yeah, I mean... Okay. It, it is, and I think to kind of like take a step back, though, if, if there's a way to sort of frame this issue, mm -hmm. um, what you have is, 
a sort of mutually, it seems, irreconcilable situation where unlike other conflicts like, or seemingly unlike other conflicts like Northern Ireland where you have like sectarian violence, but then both sides maybe want to figure out a way to live in peace mm -hmm. and figure this out. There are still parties on both mm -hmm. sides of this that it seems don't, but at the same time you have people who are benefiting directly from the current state of things and, and you have, for instance, like on the Palestinian side, it, they call it uh, normalization. And what normalization is, is normalizing Israeli Jewish presence in the land of Israel. And so if you're a Palestinian and you're seen talking to an Israeli, talking to an Israeli, and that's like a capital offense, you can be killed for it because people say you're a spy. Um, on the Israeli side, you have people uh, who don't believe that the Palestinians, the Arabs should be in Israel. But I'm not sure that there's a balance because, for instance, Israel offered, I mean, multiple times, something 90-something percent of the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria to them and have offered multiple times to, I mean, they left Gaza. I mean, Gaza used to have Jews living there, and now they don't. And then people say, well, it's still an open-air prison, and this and that. But that was in response to violence. And I think that to understand the Israeli point of view, it, it's still tied into this sense of, like, when you look at the map, um, it's Israel and then surrounded by 20-something Arab countries, I mean, a billion Arabs, and not all of whom are our enemies necessarily. I mean, there are peace you know, treaties with Egypt, with Jordan. Uh, you're seeing you know, warming relations with a lot of the Gulf Arab countries. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, you're talking about a people that, you know, the Holocaust happened, and there's all this rhetoric from Hamas saying we want to kill all the Jews and we mm -hmm. want to fill us up. So there's, there's fear from, from that side, and so... It's just sort of the cycle that feeds into it. Like every time that there could be sort of like an opportunity to move things forward, there's just a lot of distrust on, on both sides. And a lot of people, like I said, a lot of people benefiting from the current state and a lot of just like um, obstacles to overcome. Do you think that pattern's just going to continue? Yes. Okay. So there's no <laughs> real end in sight, you don't think? Um, you never know. I mean, we... Um, my girlfriend and I, we, we heard this guy talk who's involved in the Northern Ireland peace process. And he said that basically, I think his quote was like, you know, there wasn't peace until there was peace. You know, it, mm. like it, it seemed dark, 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 dark. And then it, it happened all of a sudden that, that there was sort of some movement and some, some ways forward. I think that the biggest problem in Israel and the, and the Palestinian territories is this division, is the separation. Uh, because before Oslo, um, you had, you know, exchanges and people were going from Tel Aviv to Ramallah and they were going from you know interacting yeah. and, and seeing each other and this and that and I was in the, I remember I was in Ramallah and I asked one of the, the my the guy who I was with and, and touring with and I asked him like what is your impression of Israelis like when you think of Israelis and he said you know a 19 year old soldier who tells me I can or can't go here hmm. and because that's the only interaction basically that that they have they and then have. for Israelis when you ask them a lot of times what's your experience with an Arab or a Palestinian it's a little bit different for Israelis because Arabs live in Israel, I mean, 1.25, I think, million Arabs live in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the north, in, in Jaffa. Um, but there's a distinction between them and the ones who live in these other areas, Gaza and the West Bank. And so um, it's just, it's like anything else, it becomes really easy to demonize the other when you're not interacting with that yeah. other. Um, that said, you know, there's this sort of like u liberal universalist idea that like, oh, we all want the same thing and we all just want to live in peace and we all want good education for our kids and we all... I think it's a huge trap to fall into in this specific conflict because I don't think that's the case. Hmm. And I think that the societies reflect that. And there are examples you can point to and there are things you can look at, but basically to think that everybody wants what you want, it, it's, it's pretty arrogant. And I think that it's not helped that advance that conflict at all. And so 
I'm not saying that one side wants death and, and destruction, and one side wants peace and this and that, but um, the specifics in terms of um, what's driving the conflict on each side, I think, is, is quite different. Okay. And so is that some of your proudest work in journalism over in Israel, or...? Um, I don't know, actually. It's a good question. Uh, okay. You know, that was um, a bit earlier in my career, and so some, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a good question. I think that certainly a lot of the work that I did there is uh, I'm proud of, and I feel like was, was helpful in terms of, like, sort of um, showing the conflict, or not even showing the conflict, just, like, showing Israel in, in, in a more realistic and different light, and also within the Palestinian territories, that, like, when you go over there, you it, it's really easy to not see the conflict, especially in Israel. Uh, when you're on the beaches in Tel Aviv, mm. you feel completely removed from it. Um, even like in the center of Ramallah, in, in these Palestinian cities, you don't, I mean, it's possible also to insulate yourself from it. Um, other ones, not as much. Jerusalem, it's all over. I mean, Jerusalem's just like a heavy city, you know, because okay. people are living and mixing and it's all these ancient sites and you, you feel it. You feel the, the whole, the, I feel like the holiness of it, but you feel the conflict and everyone's sort of existing together somehow. Um, and then you have uh, Hebron, which is like the Wild West. So Hebron is, is, a, different, is a different situation. But, um, but to go back to the, the question, yeah, I would say that definitely some of the work there, it's definitely some of the most like, Oh, interesting, exciting, you're trying to figure out these narratives, and that's the hardest part. I mean, even that's why like some of these answers are, are rambling on a little bit, is because it's, again, it's like, where do you draw the start point? Where do you draw the end point? And how do you construct, or what is the narrative that you're going to construct just based on these facts that, you know, and when I do interviews over there, you people would give you answers and you'd have discussions that seem like parallel realities. Mm. Um, just like completely different yeah, just realities, basically. So it's, it was great. Like different takes on the tensions altogether? Or what, what do you yeah, mean? Yeah, different okay. takes on the tensions, different starting points. Like one side is talking about, you know, um, I mean, I'm trying to think of like a specific, specific example of this. But like, um, you know, where, I mean, I'm drawing a blank right now. But like one example would just be like with, uh, with the war. I mean, you can look at like the different conflicts, like what starts it and what, you know, what led to it. And like I'm saying before, like, uh, it started with the, the Israelis killing this guy from Hamas and then they responded to it. And then they, the, the people in, in Gaza would be saying, no, this is about like Israeli colonial imperialism and this and that. And then the Israelis are like, what? Like, no, it's nothing to do with that. Like, it's to do with because they tried to dig tunnels underneath the, the ground to come up and kill the people in the, in the settlement, in the, in the kibbutzes around, the, mm. around Gaza. So, and then they want to talk about that, but they want to talk about this, and you, it's like supposed to be one story, and you, you you really get good at figuring out like how to yeah. bring in both sides or not. How, how much time did you spend in Israel when you were over there doing some of that work? So that was one year. Okay. That was one full year over there, and then um, subsequently, like I said, probably half a dozen times, I okay. think, since then, for various periods of time. Okay. And your, you studied anthropology, right? Which I think is so cool. I think I would have been an anthropologist in another life. But did you, do you find that anthropology and journalism kind of go hand in hand or not so much? I think that this is like one of the Steve Jobs things where it's like you connect the dots going backwards. Like okay. I, I can't sit here and say like I did anthropology because I thought it would inform journalism. I didn't think, I didn't even, I never thought I'd be a journalist really. Um, but looking back, you can definitely see the, the connections. Um, 
The thing, the biggest one is like ultimately what I was just saying about taking disparate facts and constructing them into a, a narrative. So I'd say there's like two things. Number one is that. And number two would be um, just like jumping in to different realities and lives and ways of doing things um, and, and observing and trying to... These are skills that you picked up in anthropo anthropological yeah. studies that you... Okay. Yeah. Um, Definitely, definitely. Because I'd say like those are the two things that, I mean, there are different goals a lot of times between anthropology and journalism in terms of what you're trying to do or like what the finished product is. But definitely like the training, the, the interviewing techniques, the listening to people, the observation, like I'd say they definitely correlate. So what's the difference in your opinion between anthropology and journalism? O opinion in what? Oh, just uh, you would mention like the goals are different. Oh. How are they different? So in journalism, I mean, you're trying to inform the public in a very sort of, not quick way, but like, um, like you're trying to do it in, a, in, a, in an active sense, like today. Mm -hmm. Like here's a story, how does it relate today? Why are we covering this right now? And, and why does it matter to the reader and the public? And it's something I go back and forth with editors a lot um, about, just because like, here's a great story and I have this great narrative and this and that, and they're like, okay, but like, why do we have to do it now? Like, why can't we do it in a year or in two years or five years or never? And so there's, there's that goal of journalism. And then in anthropology, the timelines I don't feel like are as, as specific. Mm. And so you have a lot more freedom and a lot more um, leeway in terms of like studying different cultures and different peoples. And, you know, the, the, the sort of like originating theories and the driving forces of anthropology I think are different too in terms of how you sort of... Um, perceive these cultures and how you like the role of the interviewer and the role of sort of like, like I feel like a lot of times in anthropology it's like you try to just pretend like you're the fly on the wall yeah you know and just like almost like a, I don't want to say like a stenographer but like it seems like it's more geared towards that as opposed to in journalism I think it's a little bit more um yeah a little bit more active maybe and not like from an ad what do you so so my my um knowing much less about both of these disciplines than you do. My take is, okay, anthropology, you're trying to assimilate into a culture and really become a part of it, and then kind of make sense of that and write ethnographies that somebody outside of that culture could read and sort of come to understand a little bit of that culture. Um, journalism, I, I don't know. I, I would think that responsible, good, thoughtful journalism would involve a bit of that, like trying to make people understand where the people they're reporting on are coming from. But uh, journalism is really slanted a lot of times too, and that's definitely something you try to avoid in anthropology, I would think. Well, you become slanted from the culture you're studying's perspective, right? Yeah. Um, so I think in journalism, I think that it's, there's different kinds. There's different sort of um, goals for the different types of journalism. There are even different stories. So you okay. have like a feature journalism story. You have like a breaking news story. You have like a enterprise story where you're like in, or investigating something or like a longer sort of like expose for the be like more in a magazine piece. And and I think that one of the things with journalism, especially now, is that it's it, it's. It, I don't know that it, it, it's like a lot of things, you know, and there's a lot of disagreement about what it is and what it should be and what are the goals and what are we doing and, and ethics even, you know, even basic ethics. Like there's a surprising amount of disagreement between like what the diff, like on the record, everybody knows what it is, but like on background or off the record, there's, there's divergence in understanding about what those terms mean. And those are supposed to be like basic sort of like 
journalism 101 type concepts. So what do you mean? Like, what's an example? So, like, on the record, everybody knows, right? If I'm, like, going and interviewing someone, I say, okay, this is on the record. I'm a journalist and this is on the record. So it means that everything that that person mm -hmm. says can be used and attributed to them in the article. But then you have, like, on background or off the record. And even with that, like, people, there's, like, disagreements about what is contained in that, you know? So something you know, off the record would be... Um, you know, something that's like you can't attribute to that person or you can attribute it to that person. I'm sorry, you can use the information, but you can't attribute it to that person or you can like use a sort of a way of attribution, right? Mm -hmm. So you can say like a source deep inside the White House or a, a high level ranking okay. and that and versus then like on background, um, you know, some people it's like, all right, so you can use the information or you can basically use it as a tip and then you have to find somebody else to actually say it or someone that's going to like allow you to okay. attribute it to them. So it's like one level even of more sort of anonymity. Yeah. Okay. So you, you know you talk to like a person in administration and say like, oh you know our you know the you know the office you know our office says that like we don't want to do a b and c so then you can say like so now you have that piece of information now you have to find somebody else to corroborate it where basically versus like you know based on the level of attribution, sometimes they'd be like, okay, you can attribute this to like a high-ranking source. And again, there's like, you're finding that like there's wide ranges of disagreement and you also have from people like, who try to like, do other, like you like having a conversation or an interview with somebody, like a, a source and they'd be like, oh, and this is off the record. But it's not really working like that. Like it's supposed to be a mutually um, agreed upon sort of um, interaction. And so if something's on the record, it's on the record. But of course, when you're, in the moment, I mean, as a journalist, you're always sort of, you know, these are trust relationships. So you, there's, there is, I mean, like, all right, is it worth it to put this piece of information maybe aside so that we can report on this or vice versa, you know? And so it's, it's hard. And, and what you're talking about, like stories being slanted and, and things of that nature, like that's a whole separate, <laughs> it's a whole separate conversation that we can have, but it's a different, it's sort of different from this because this is like, the, the nuts and bolts of journalism and then the slanting and how that yeah. happens is sort of, yeah, it's a separate topic. So I'm, I'm still having trouble understanding um, like practical examples of what the disagreements are with these nuts and bolts pieces. So if somebody says something is off the back, off the record or on in the background, is that the on term? Background, on yeah. background. Um, what are the nuts and bolts? What's a practical example of what that looks like? What two journalists might interpret and do differently? So I think that, again, like on the record, everybody knows what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about like off the record versus on background. So an example would be, you know, we're doing an interview here and you'd be like, uh, you know, you should check into this thing that City Hall is doing or, I mean, mm -hmm. it's hard. Like, it would, or just mean that, like, like I, I feel like I'm kind of understanding the difference between off the record and on background, yeah. but I'm not understanding, you were saying that journalists have, like, totally different interpretations of these, or in practice act totally differently when somebody says this is off the record, um, from one another, right? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, sometimes, and sources have different understandings of what it is, too, which is where you get a lot of this disagreement, like, oh, the sources okay. say, like, oh, okay. I thought this is, you know you're not gonna be able to like identify this back to me versus like I thought I didn't know that and this and that. And so what I always do is I don't really use these terms. You know, or when someone says like, this is off the record. So I wouldn't just say like, okay, I'd be like, what do you think that means? Like, what is the, what are we, you know, doing here? Because again, as a journalist, like, there's a, maybe the highest level of responsibility, like, of accountability is to the public, I, you know, but like, 
I don't know, like I put that right up with like protecting sources in, in these situations um, because it's sort of like, it's like a, it's the whole ball game. Like if your sources, if you like burn a source or if sources can't trust you or if the readers can't trust you, like that's it. Like then there is no journalism. And that's what you're, that's what you're seeing now. But to go back to, so the question would be like, someone would say, you know, like, okay, like talking to somebody in the, the governor's office, right? And the person in the governor's office says like, you know, uh, you know, our, we're thinking to do A, B, and C policy, mm -hmm. but you can't use my name because I'm not like authorized to say this and like we don't necessarily want this to be, you know, excuse me, like set in stone right now. And there's a lot of reasons why someone would tell you something like leak it and get it out there like as a trial balloon, like to see what the reaction is. Um, and so then in that case, and then if they were like, if it did come back to them, like they would get fired and they'd have a lot of repercussions and consequences. So you could either like, and if they feel like saying like a high ranking official would be enough, you know, to, to anonymize them, then you can do that. Versus like if they think that, for instance, like this piece of information with any sort of level of attribution can be traced back to them, then they don't want to have themselves associated with it in any way. And then you have to find somebody else to corroborate it. And so again, there's just like disagreements about or mis dis different understandings about like on background, off the record, which is why again, at this point, like I don't use terms like that. You just say like, okay. all right, you know, what do you think that means? And like, can we use, you know, and then, and, and that's all something that's very important and taken very seriously by every um, serious journalist. But again, like you, you read stories sometimes where it's like, especially like, pres like the higher level public officials where they're like, you know, and, and the Clinton campaign was doing this, I read about it, where they were just like sending emails like, this is off the record, and then say a bunch of stuff, but like, it's not, it's not usually, it's like, not how it works, you know, mm. it's not like dictated by one party to another, <laughs> or if it is, you know, then, then there's a choice, right? Like someone would say, you know, I'll tell you this, but it, it's off the record, you know, are you willing to, you know, sort of not have this lead back to me, or this is on background, and, um, mm. You know, and then there's a choice. Like, I want to hear this or I don't want to hear this. But it's not just like, all right, this is off the record, and then say a bunch of stuff. Okay. Then it's not as well-defined as what to do with that. There, are there any... I'm assuming there aren't really any legal protections for just a general member of the public who gives a tip to a journalist, and they wanted that tip to be off the record, um, whatever that means, and the journalist doesn't really follow that. I'm assuming the journalist technically is not going to face any legal problems, right? Not in this country. Um, I mean, there, there could be, I suppose, like, civil penalties if that source has, like, a repercussion for it, I suppose, but I've never heard of that. And okay. But basically, it'd be like, that would kind of, like, end a journalist's career. Like, there's sort of, like, mm. two things, I think, that would end a journalist's career. One would be making things up, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, that would do it. Uh, and then, like, burning sources because nobody... Because that would come out, and then who would ever trust that journalist you, ever again yeah, okay. to, for anything? And, and the publications also don't want to be associated with that because, again, with journalists, I think there's misunderstandings. And, and again, when you say journalists, like, it, there's a wide swath of journalists here. But So I'm talking about like professional, serious, like okay. not partisan hacks and this and pundits, but like serious journalists at any level. Um, take this stuff super seriously, I mean, because that's what we're doing. Is And, and if we're not... You know, we don't get paid that much. So it's like you talk about like core values of, of what it is. It's like, yeah, finding the story, keep protecting sources. I mean, you, you saw journalists go to jail over it during, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Jim Risen, I think, was during the Obama administration. I don't know if he ended up going to jail, but his source did. But he was willing to. He was, he was not willing to give up that source. And he was willing to take that to the ends of the river to like, mm -hmm. you know, to show how 
you know, how these things get taken because people, um, depending on the story, like it's not too much to say. And I don't usually deal with that. I don't know that I've ever dealt with it, but like where, where if someone got revealed like they would be killed, but around the world and in, in, in even here, like it happens. And so, I mean, you can just imagine from a human perspective, like would you, you know, what story is, is worth your, the person who trusted you to tell you something to then get right. killed. So this all makes me think of the Snowden, um, all the Snowden stuff that came out in those documentaries and Laura Poitras, is that how you say her yeah, name? I think so. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. I, I, that's just an aspect of journalism I've never thought about or considered before, all the risks that you take in protecting your own sources. You, you do. I mean, again, I don't want to like overstate my case. I'm not doing like <laughs> national intrigue type, type stories like that, but plenty of my colleagues are, and they, it, it's, it's taken with the utmost seriousness. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of like public misunderstanding also about like sourcing, about this issue that you're talking about. And so when people say like anonymous sources, some people think, I think some readers think that like they're anonymous to us as journalists. They're not. We know exactly who they are and we verify who they are because again, like there's like misdemeanors and felonies in journalism, I think is the saying. And like the misdemeanor is like a typo or correction or something like that. But like the felony is like being naive and like getting taken for a ride and having somebody like spin mm. you a story and then it turns out that it's not true or like that you've been sort of co-opted or used for somebody else's purposes that, you know, and then those, those things are not true. So, you know, it's like all these things we have, like, you know, if your mother tells you um, she loves you, like check into it. Yeah, yeah so how, how do you check into that thoroughly? I mean, if you hear a tip that sounds potentially fishy, how do you follow up on it? And, and what does it take before you're convinced that this is real enough, I'm going to put my name to it and publish it? I can tell you that the threshold's really high for that. I mean, it's not like one corroboration, like it's several when you're talking about stories like that. So it depends, again, on the specifics of, of what it is. I can tell Which you... Which story? Are you thinking of like the Snowden thing still or just stories in general? So Snowden, like they actually went to see him. Right. And they actually like went to Hong Kong, I think is the way that story goes. And then right. he like... Showed them showed the documents. Them the stuff. And <laughs> yeah. then I don't, I mean, I don't know how they specifically, I mean, I, I think it says how they like followed up and tried to corroborate from third sources and this yeah. and that. But like in a very basic way without talking about like Snowden and national yeah, security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's say like... Like the the um, surfing, I want to ask you a little bit about the surfing stories, yeah. but um, well, actually, maybe could you just tell me a little bit about the surfing stories, and then maybe let's use those as an example because that sounds like it has some elements of not not really. So oh, okay. a little bit separate. Maybe there's a different example the, then. And this goes back to like the different kinds of stories and, and and things like that. But like there are there are definitely similarities. But like I, one example I think that elucidates what you were talking about is my friend um, who won a Pulitzer, Rob Kuznia. So he got a tip, the way he tells the story, it's, I don't necessarily want to tell other people's stories, but just, it, it's a really good example of it, that like, he got a tip about this superintendent, someone just sent, like, you should check into this, like, he's, the superintendent's doing things, you know, shady. And so, then you'd, like, go and try to just unspool the thread a little bit, like, you just talk to people, like, a lot of journalism is just talking to people, like, picking up the phone, going out, knocking on doors, whatever it is, and following up on, on those leads and saying, hey... Um, and, and any, you know, not lying, obviously, but like trying to figure, get people to talk and, you know, figure out, um, how much veracity there is to any sort of like specific claim. So, um, so do you find just sources that don't know each other, but should all know what's going on? Like, let's say the superintendent, you find different faculty members that interact with that superintendent, but don't necessarily interact with each other. Otherwise, how do you really, I mean, look, there, 
there could be a conspiracy. Like there could be people who like conspire as a group to like get a fake story <laughs> out there. You know, it could yeah. happen. It usually doesn't. Okay. But um, yeah, you would want three. I mean, the, the standard is like usually like three independent sources to like all confirm the same thing. But then even a lot of times with like a story like, all right, there's like corruption in the school district and he's, this guy's like appropriating funds and he's getting this super inflated salary. There would need to be some like physical documentation, like official documentation that shows this somehow. Like it's not enough like three teachers say, yeah, he's, he's totally okay. doing it. That wouldn't really meet the standard. I mean, at the newspaper, I mean, my editors wouldn't publish that. Uh, you know, um, because, because you publish that and then it's not true and then you have a problem. Again, that goes back to like being taken for a ride or it's like, half as much as what people said it was and there's yeah. corrections. And there are examples where the, like big publications have done things like that and then it, it it's a big problem and it like demeans the whole industry because people then look at those small, like sometimes big, sometimes small examples. The New York Times dealt with this with Jason Blair. The guy was just making up sources and making up stories. Mm -hmm. And then you go back and people are like, I don't believe the New York Times and then they point to this. And the New York Times could have 10,000 stories and like he did a dozen or a hundred, whatever it was. And they can issue all these corrections and say, look, here's how it happened, here's how we're fixing it, here's how we're changing it. But the damage to an extent done. Is, is done. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of it, like, it's hard to say, like, a, um, a flow chart of how you would pursue a tip from a story. But generally, it's like someone gives you a tip and then you just try to verify that information or learn as much as you can. There's, there's standard, like, standard ways of doing it, like talk to like, people that are retired, talk about people that may be more willing, maybe who are not working there currently, but they know. Um, going to court records, going to other public documents, and then sort of trying to triangulate that and piece it together. So um, this is changing gears a bit, but I think it would be interesting to ask you a little bit about fake news, because I'm wondering, I feel like I don't have a full understanding of what people are afraid of when they talk about fake news. I don't know if they're afraid of journalists just making up a story for that journalist agenda, or if they're more concerned about like twisting or stretching of truth. So not like a complete fabrication, but instead this is so slanted that it's just sort of cherry picking these facts that doesn't give an accurate picture and that's the fake news fear. What is your sense for that? I really think it depends on who you ask. Um, okay. Again, it's the same thing with, we're using these terms, not you and I, but just in society, like we're using these terms fake news. Yeah. On background, off the record, you know, uh, and what I'm, does it mean? I'm really not sure that people have the same definitions or they're operating from the same like starting point for, for what they're talking about. Like when Donald Trump talks about fake news, I even don't know what he's talking like he's talking about stories like you're saying, like are they mm. whole like fabricated out of whole cloth? Uh, are they like you're saying slanted this and that? I, I or really are they even just like those like fake Twitter messages that people repost and it goes viral yeah. on like Facebook or something? Yeah, so I feel like that's, there's like two flavors of, like you said, like there's like the just made up stories from like whoever, the Russians or whoever it is, or, or these like mills that are just pumping out these stories to get clicks mm -hmm. and things like that. And then again, there's like the separate issue of like um, biases and angles and slants and things like that. So when we're talking about fake news, it's not, um, I don't, that's not a, that's not a journalism problem. That's not a journalism industry problem. That's a Facebook problem. That's a Twitter problem. That's a humanity, society, whatever you want to call it, like partisanship problem. Like journalism doesn't really connect with that. It's just being, it's co-opting journalism or like the look of journalism to further their cause. I don't know if there's a role in journalism to necessarily. Well, hang on, hang on. I, I have to think about that. I have to think about what you just said because I don't know if I 
I'm not a journalist, but I don't know if I would agree with that because if if we are talking about the fake news flavor of like this is a wholly fabricated story, clearly yeah. that's a journalism problem. But that sounds like it's very rare. Right? That is rare. That doesn't. I mean, I wouldn't say that doesn't happen, but I would say that like I I don't know any colleagues that I have or stories I've heard of where just you have a journalist just making up a right. story. That like, seems like, these, like it would be. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm an academic, so right? Yeah. That'd be somebody doing those fake papers, like, about um, vaccines giving autism and things yeah. like that, that it comes out eventually, usually, and then it's just, it's devastating, but also very rare. Yeah, so I think, that, and that's what I'm saying, that, like, that's not a problem, what I'm saying, like, that's not a journalism problem, is not a problem currently in American journalism that that reporters are just inventing stories or even I would say like irresp- like sometimes you can get into the subtleties of this of like stories that they that certain publications choose to run and how solid they are with those stories mm-hmm. and and you know but like this like the there's like these bizarre conspiracy theories that, that come out about that came out in like 2016 election about Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. and child trafficking at a pizza shop or something and like there, <laughs> you know, I don't know there was like something about that and some guy then went to that pizza shop and I think started shooting people and that didn't touch with journalism like that wasn't a new york times story it wasn't a washington post story. it wasn't a local story that was just like a, a conspiracy theory that got like promulgated on the internet and then clicked on in this net but like i don't like there are problems in journalism today a lot mm-hmm. of them from a business standpoint from a like a content standpoint you could say from a sourcing from a trust standpoint all of those things but again and we should talk about well, this. Well, I mean, but, is, is a trust issue with journalism not the problem of fake news? I, maybe I'm thinking about this incorrectly again. Yeah. I'm not like an experienced person in these areas. But just as myself not deeply thinking into these issues, my gut reaction is that like the reason trust with journalists is low is is related to this issue of fake news and probably probably less um, like I'm not really I'm not really worried that some CNN or Fox News anchors completely fabricating something, but I am a little bit concerned that they're taking things out of context or cherry picking, like I was saying earlier, to make it sound like what's being said is very different than if you read full context on both sides, on both sure. liberal and conservative. Sure. And that seems like if that if that's what people mean by fake news, that does seem like a journalism problem. That is a journalism problem. Okay. So that is. So I, I wanted <laughs> to make that distinction, or at least okay. like go back okay. to the distinction that you made, which I agree with, that you have the sort of like made up out of whole cloth Hillary Clinton conspiracy theories, um, that thing and like the Russian hackers and this and like just literally stories that are not based in fact at all and then putting them out there and people click on them and make them viral. And that's not something that's going on in journalism to make up stories out of whole cloth. And and people, it'd be so easy, you would think, to like push back against it, although it turns out it's not because if it was, then like these things would happen. But that's not going on. We're not making up stories. What you're talking Mm -hmm. about though in terms of selective narratives in terms of how to position these stories, that absolutely is going on. Okay. It's absolutely going on and it's absolutely a journalism problem and it's something that has not been resolved and it continues today not to be resolved um, because a lot of the norms and a lot of the standards and a lot of the things that journalism sort of been based on in a sense or at least taken as um, as not like as a sort of like starting points are no longer exist. So you have a president who does not have the same relationship with the truth as other presidents, even though, like public trust in the government has sank since like the Vietnam War. But you know, it, it becomes a question of not just like Trump and his, tr- his like truthfulness and his net, but just like how he approaches the media, mm-hmm. and and the, the norms that he chooses to ignore, and that are not illegal. You know, and it's not. You know, there's a there's a book I read. It was a CIA officer who was like, look, it's not illegal to lie to the press. 
And he's right. It's not illegal to lie to the press. It's the press's job to find out who's lying and to then try to bring these facts together to the public to decide. But it's a lot harder to do that in practice than it is in theory. So like what you're talking about, selective facts and yeah. narratives or stories. And it's very simple to figure out. Like when there's these shootings, you can see it just in the public discussion, right? Like there's a shooting somewhere. One side wants to talk about gun control. One side wants to talk about, weirdly enough, gun control, but in a different way, yeah. you know, the opposite way. And then they want to talk about mental health, and they want to talk about public safety, and then they want to talk about this. So, you know, again, like the story that you want to write. So you could say 12 people were killed in Thousand Oaks, you know, and then that's like the AP way kind of doing like the wires. Like it's just mm -hmm. this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. But people want more than that a lot of times. And by the way, AP does also context, but like sort of... The, you have like the bare bones, what happened, especially like in the wake of these events. And then you have sort of the analysis or the context. I won't even call it analysis, context. And when you start getting into context, you know, that's when you start getting into this murkiness. And when people are saying like the New York Times or the, whoever is like looking at it from a certain perspective, I would argue that they're correct. You know? Okay, so you're saying that people want, I mean, like journalism, if you just gave pure facts, tends to kind of fall flat because people who are consuming these articles or videos, whatever they are, want a slant more or less. I think that they do want a slant. That's my personal opinion. But more than they want a slant, I would say that they want to understand or need to understand the context. I mean, if, if you say, for instance, in a story like, um, I don't know, like, What's a, what's a recent example of this? Like, uh, okay, that the esports industry, I've done some, a lot of stories on like esports, professional video games. Like, the esports industry is worth a um, billion dollars. Okay, that seems like a lot, but how much is that in relation to the NFL, right? How mm -hmm. much is that in relation to the movie industry? How much is that? So it's like you can put numbers out there, you can put facts out there, but like how do we understand what those facts and figures mean or growth rates and like percentages? And, like. Mm -hmm. When you just throw things out there without sort of understanding how those exist in a way, I think that the story is not as valuable to to the reader. And so at every point, there has to be decisions and, and discussions about what are we going to include, what are we not going to include. Um, Israel is a, a great example of this. This is the best, probably the best, easiest to understand <laughs> example of this when you're talking about these things. Because like even something, here's it. Even something that's like the last war that they had there in Gaza, they'd say like, okay, 60 or whatever, 60-something Israelis have been killed and 2,000 Palestinians have been killed. And they, mm -hmm. a lot of times they just put that at the end of the article. And that's, those are accurate, I mean, there was some debate about it, but like, those are facts. But when you look at those facts, you think like, well, if it's 64 to 2,000, you know, like, like a football game, one side is really killing the other side a lot more. But then, and a lot of news organizations chose to just report that. But, you know, what about the fact that like Hamas is putting their rocket launchers next to their schools, next to inside apartment buildings, mm -hmm. inside, and, in, and this is also going on now in other parts of the Arab world, and you're starting to see it more in Syria, in in that war, and, and in Iraq, and and they're seeing of like civilian shields and human mm -hmm. casualties as a result of that, and so then it's like people, I think, if they understood that, then they, there's a fuller picture that's sort of being created. But mm -hmm. again, if you have 800 words to get into all this, you know, as we said in the beginning of this interview, like I'm trying to <laughs> figure out a way to create a the coherent narrative from the last yeah. few weeks versus the last few months versus the last few thousand years. And it's, it's, it's not easy. And everyone, especially in these highly contentious issues, is going to feel like part of their, what they want to hear about or part of like the thrust that they want to hear is, is being left out. Um, so is the press, is the press writing slant because people want slant or 
do people want slant because the press is writing slant? That's our question. First of all, I'm not, I don't know that I would call it slant. I well, mean, not it, always. Yeah, I don't think that the press is writing slant. I mean, you, certainly cable news is, is slanted, right? And we all okay. know that. Like Fox is and versus MSNBC, Fox News versus MSNBC, and now CNN. Uh, so I don't, I don't think I can accurately say that like the media, the journalism, especially like written print media is like writing slant. And, and I think that's also really important at this point to, to note the distinction between like the op-ed pages and the reporting pages. And I think sometimes people get those sort of conflated as well. That like the sure. op-ed pages for newspapers are separate or they're supposed to be separate yeah. from the reporting. And so like you could have, for instance, like the New York Times or the Washington Post, like the op-ed pages will be, and the editorial boards are slanted left. But it doesn't necessarily mean then the reporting gets slanted left. Like there, there are different sort of like organizational charts. De facto, though, I mean, it takes a, a special kind of person to sit here at this stage of the game and be like, no, they're both down the line, unbiased, like whatever. No, I mean, and I, and there's a part of me that thinks like that at some point we should just do it like the British do it and just be like, you know, put it out there and just be like, yeah, we're a center left news media organization. That's where right. we're running from, and give the audience some. Some credit that yeah. they understand that, and I think yeah. that, and I think that it would help because then people would be like, oh, then the slant wouldn't be the issue, and we wouldn't be debating about, you know, this is bias net. We'd be debating like the merits of, of the situation of the article instead of like, you know, you know what I mean, like the content or the situation of what it's talking about instead of like, this is bias. Are journalists trained to? Um, well, I guess your degree is in anthropology, but are journalists generally? trained to try to write without a bias or yeah, definitely i mean i definitely. that that i definitely. i'm asking because it's not obvious to no, me anymore I, no i i know what you mean i know what you mean uh it it's funny because i'm i'm, I'm my reaction is that because like <laughs> it's funny because yes you're absolutely trained to do that but in practice like it's not that it's it's not that it's hard it's just like it's uh i think it's impossible i think it's impossible i think it's impossible to write an article that's objective. I don't know even know what that means. Right, right. You would I think the best thing is just to own up to okay, this is kind of our biased perspective. We are center right or whatever. Yeah, and so but it's a, actually you ask a good question and and the reality is that yes, there are things that you do and techniques and like getting sources from all sides of an article to 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 um to contribute and even like and that's the interesting thing is that like in a in a reading of the same story, if you read it from like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, your local newspaper, the same story and, and how they cover it. Um, and if you were to like remove the title of the publication, I don't know that every single time you could say, like, okay, this is the liberal New York Times and this is the conservative Wall Street Journal. And I'm not sure that it's that consistent, but it's just, it ultimately becomes, um, it just becomes difficult like when you're talking about all right all of these different facts and all these different narratives and all these different voices and like again like which ones do you include and how much and how do you s construct this narrative and sometimes mm -hmm. it may come out to seem this way or come out to seem that way but like I think that a lot of times and this is a, a discussion that does take place um, in in journalism is like it's the perspective and where that journalist is coming from as so you talk about issues of like diversity but not just like ethnic diversity but like experiential diversity and mm. and and I think that it becomes extremely helpful because you can see things or focus in on things or identify things that like person A can see the person B wouldn't necessarily be able to see or be sensitive to um, and so yeah and then when you're talking about like are you trained like I didn't I didn't go to journalism school I mean it's a lot of journalists feel I'm myself included that it is more of like a trade like it's better to just mm -hmm. go out and 
do it. Go do it and like get some experience and learn and make your mistakes, hopefully quietly and, and move <laughs> on. Um, but uh, you know, and, and editors also have a big role in all of this too. And we're talking a lot about journalists, but like at the end of the day, even like freedom of the press, like yeah, freedom of the press to the extent that like your editor allows it, because you know, and the publisher allows it. Yeah. And so, um, and that's the other thing is that again, for like most articles. Um, it's not just like the journalist writes it and posts it online. Like, there's a review process. There are multiple people looking at it. Um, what is what is sort of the general process for getting any piece published? Um, after you mean like after it's written, like what's the review process? Or just like in uh, just like kind of a. I guess I'm thinking even even broader than that. Like, how do you become a journalist? How do you get on retainers? How do you then get a specific story to be published? Um. Very good questions. Different, I would say there's different pathways to do it. And I think the, the quickest way to sort of break it down would be like, the one way would be like, go get a journalism degree, ideally like a master's in journalism, right? And spend 50, or however much it costs, 50, 60, $70,000, just like a year salary for most journalists. And then um, get an internship and, and go from there. Like that would be mm -hmm. the one way to do it. Another way would be like, this is like the more traditional way to be like, go work for like a small local newspaper and then write a bunch of stories, get recognition, sort of work your way up the ranks to bigger and bigger ones. Um, and then there's a way that I did it, which is like you just go to a international place of news value um, and just, like I said, convince an editor to read your stuff and just go and just start basically reporting. and read as much as you can and, and there's a lot of resources online and talk to as many people as you can and um, and it sounds funny to say it like this, you just go out and report and anybody can be a reporter but the reality is that anybody can. I mean it's like any other job or profession, like you go, you get your experience, you, you learn and um, you know, the, it turns out that like the basics of it are, are pretty, you know, it's like chess, right? It's like easy to learn the rules mm. except for on the record, off the record, on background, there's a disagreement. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the, the basics, like, you know, go interview people and get the interviews and put it in, you know, the, the inverted triangle of journalism, like the most important stuff, and then who, what, when, where, how, you know, who, what, when, where, how, and then go and do it. And then, of course, you know, it gets more and more complicated as you go on and, and what quotes to use and what questions to ask and how to make an article, not just that it has the facts, but like that people want to read and that's interesting, gives the context, like that takes years. But the basics of like going out and like reporting on a city council meeting or, and even actually that's not as simple as it seems, but just like, you know, a, a local fair. Um, you know, I think most people instinctively like know how, to, would know how to do that and go yeah. and interview a few people, talk to the person who organized it, how many people, how big is, or maybe it's not obvious. Like you go, you know, you just like the basic facts to, to share with people and then uh, it, it builds from there, I guess. So, okay. And then, so you get, if somebody starts to read your stories and they like them, that's when you may or may not be able to be on a retainer with them? And how do the retainers work? How long are those? So, those are different. I would say that that's not the usual way of doing things. Like, the oh, usual okay. way would be, like, just freelancing. So, you okay. go out and, like, go to a place of news value and start, like, figuring out pitches and stories and then finding editors, like, by any which way you can, networking and, or cold emails. That's worked for me a few times, like, um, with, like, a pitch email, basically. Um, and be like, here's, you know, the story, here's the angle that I want to do it on, and then here's the people I can interview, and, you know, yeah. my rate, or, or whatever it is. And then an editor would look at it and say, like, yes or no, basically. And then that's sort of how you get your foothold into it. And then, ideally, uh, yeah, you just build on it, and you generate trust. And what I'm talking about also, like, it being a trust business, like, mm -hmm. 
it works not with the public like that, but it works with editors like that too. Like you could have the same pitch from two people, one person that this editor knows and the other one they don't. They're just going to choose the one from the person they know, even if the angle is slightly weaker or not as mm-hmm. interesting just because editors don't want to get burned either. Yeah. So it's it's also like, um, you know, it's like we were talking about um, like Silicon Valley, like with VCs, like they're just going to write a check for half a million dollars, like some person who walks in and they don't, there's no way of contextualizing who that person <laughs> yeah. is. Like, here, here's half a million dollars. Sounds like a good idea. No, they want to know, all right, how did, you know, the introduction, how did we meet? Have I seen your other work? How do I know, you know, and this and that. So, um, you know, like I, I said a few minutes ago, like just go out and report things and see okay. how it goes. It, it's it's simplifying it to a really big extent. And, and of course, the more sensitive the story, the more like complex the story, the more of experience a lot of times editors want to see. So it's like, if you don't have any credits, you don't have any stories, like, you just got to figure out how to get it any which way to get something published, and then you can build off of that. Okay. And you had mentioned earlier just talking about lots of different types of journalism. So I've been honing in on just kind of traditional article writing and um, reporting, and I guess also like news anchors video. Um, but what are some of the emerging types of journalism that you're seeing? So there's the there's the small you know, Twitter captions that could be fake news that go viral on Facebook. So I imagine that's like a micro form of journalism that we could talk about, whether it's it's real or not. But what else is there? So like, again, I wouldn't call it that journalism. Like okay. it, it purports to be journalism and it uses like the trappings of journalism, but it's not journalism. It's content marketing to an extent. And there's an interesting mm. uh, explanation I read about like what happened into the 2016 election that actually the, the impetus for doing that from the rush and nobody knows but like it's one made sense to me it was was more financial than anything else like people saw that people were clicking on these slanted mm-hmm. sort of like posts or captions whatever it was and like when you get people clicking on things there's a way to make a lot of money off of that <laughs> just with even like the arbitrage on like um how much you have to pay facebook to serve that ad versus like if you get these people to click to another website how much you can charge people to then advertise on your outbound website and mm-hmm. then you see that there's like a distinction in those rates or like not a distinction, but like a difference, and then you can make a ton of money off of it. So the idea being that some of this stuff happened just from, like, clickbait. Yeah. The problem of clickbait. Clickbait, yeah. And <laughs> okay. I don't know, I, I, again, uh, I would, that, so here's a great example. Like, that theory that I've just <laughs> said, if I told my editor, and I was like, hey, let's, let's do a story on that, they'd be like, no. Like, you can't just tell, like, it seems like a great theory, but like, how do you verify that? How can you yeah. show that that's what happened? Well, I'd have to find somebody, like I'd interview the person maybe who did it, and then I'd try to, even if whatever they told me, I'd try to like verify those figures somehow. Like, do you have a bank statement? Do you have, you know, sort of email, anything like that? Um, and and then that would maybe then eventually reach the threshold of, of doing it. And so again, I don't know if if that was the impetus, and um, but again, I don't see that as journalism. I see it as content marketing. But it, again, it becomes a problem for journalists and journalism because it, it's in now that sandbox. So, yeah. you know, there is probably, again, a responsibility from journalists like... I, Figure out I, how to differentiate. Right, how to differentiate. But again, because... Hard. But I put that on Facebook now because Facebook wants to say like, all right, we want to host all of your news stories or Apple News or whoever. Mm-hmm. And they want to take that responsibility. And all of the content marketing, clickbait, fake news is being hosted on their platforms I feel like it's on them to do it now because they've taken that mantle of responsibility, which Facebook has started doing. You know, now you see like Washington Post, like there's a little I, I think, for like information. And it's like the Washington Post mm-hmm. is a da da da. Uh, this CGTN is a Chinese state run organization. So they're trying to do that a little bit. I think it's helpful. Um, but in terms of what, the question about like the different kinds of journalism and, and what's going on, um, 
So I think that there's different ways to answer that. I think that there's like the the outlet or the medium, right? So you can talk about like Snapchat. You can talk about, um, uh, for instance, I interviewed the the new owner of the Los Angeles Times who's talking about using uh, esports and video games as like a platform to get news out or to reach younger people where they are and like using that as an outlet and a medium. So I think that like there's no shortage of examples of different ways to get news to people or to... So what would what would that look like? The, the gaming example or like the esports example? Is it like they're playing a game and there's like a news feed along the side or how does it... I, I asked them, I didn't really get an answer out of it, but okay. I think that like um, there's a few different ways and possibilities about it. I think that one, it's like looking at Twitch or looking at Discord and like okay. those those communication platforms um, in integrating news, like having a channel on Twitch. The Washington Post has done this. Uh, okay. They've started to do this. Like there's a Washington Post channel or feed on, on Twitch and, and it's like right there next to all the mm -hmm. other ones. Like that could be one way to do it. Um, I know that there's examples of, of publishers, of video game publishers that have like put like... Um, within games like little banners of like vote you know it's a very like mm -hmm. rudimentary or, or beginning way to do this like vote or you know click on this to get inform more information about how to do it so you can talk about like in-game promotions as well um and things like that but uh so from the medium standpoint or from like the outlet standpoint there's stuff like that vr ar all the other like buzzwords about just new mediums and and technologies and things like that and then as far as like um, the new ways of doing journalism, I think that actually it's, there's been like a, I don't know, like a, a sort of like a settling to an extent or like an intermediate settling. Like before, like in like say five, ten years ago, it was like all about like independent reporters and like ICNN and like iReporters. Like I'm just going to go out with my cell phone and like record some stuff and then, you know, that's going to replace these news outlets, right? Okay. Like blogs, right? And yeah. I feel like that's sort of, we've seen sort of like the tapering off of that to an extent, or at least that those blogs have been co-opted by mainstream organizations. Um, or they've, in some cases, like become sort of on the level with those, and they've become more professional, like professionalized. Mm -hmm. Like um, in Hollywood, you'd have like Deadline Hollywood. Like Deadline Hollywood, Hollywood Reporter, Variety, they've been sort of like conflated in a way. Yeah, it's interesting that the trend for a lot of these sort of decentralized businesses is for it to kind of become more and more formalized. Like, I remember when Uber could just be some beat up junky car and that was it. And now it's like, there's water bottles and you can select your own radio station and it starts to defeat the original purpose, I think. Yeah, I think it's interesting though about Uber. I think I read, or Travis was saying that, I think it started, it started in, in San Francisco, right? But then it became something about like, did it start though as like a premium service? Do you know? I don't like, know. Is it, like black cars, like the replacement for black cars, and then it went down to like, and then it, they found out that like there was this market for just like oh, everyday I think, rides. Yeah, Uber, I think it did start as like a limousine I think it, it may thing, have started And like then that. it drops down, so you're probably right yeah. about that. But, but okay. to your point, in terms of like the professionalization of it, I think that that connects with journalism to the extent that like um, people want to be taken seriously. Yeah. And I think that... Well, and now it's important or nobody ever, you're going to be... You know, you don't want to be labeled fake news if you're the single person going out with your... <laughs> yeah, and so I think that the trend towards that or like the tr in, in the Uber example or in the services example um, reflects journalism, yeah, to the extent that like it just makes it seem more legit. I tend to think that people do it in Ubers and Lyfts for like higher tips. You know, it's like a more pleasant experience. But the, the instinct, I think, is the root of it's the same thing um, in terms of like, yeah, just... 
being taken more seriously. And the same thing happened with like you know, Deadline Hollywood and in that Hollywood example, Politico. Um, and I don't think they, I don't remember, but I don't know if they started as like a blog, but certainly it's an upstart online-based mm -hmm. news organization. And so because now everything is online, there is that flattening out to the extent that like ABC News for TV is competing with the New York Times, is competing with Politico. And so it's like they're all in the same platform and they all mm -hmm. sort of, you know, some have video, more video than other ones, but it's, you know, there's been that sort of like flattening out, at least online. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Be, yeah, I think, I, I don't know, I don't know if there's more, I mean, so, and I think like going forward, um, I don't know, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, I think that like the biggest thing is that Trump has been great for news, really, he's, he's <laughs> like, a, like a, a financial boom for news, and Jeff Zucker talks about this at <laughs> CNN, uh, everyone's ratings have gone up, I think, I mean, the subscriptions for the New York Times have gone up, for the Washington Post, the views, um, and, and certainly, like, there's been segmentation more. It's like half the country won't read the New York Times. I think, like, trust... There's a recent poll that, that looked at this. I don't know if it was by, like, the Reuters Oxford thing or by Pew, but, like, it looked at, like, trust factors for different news organizations. Yeah. And you find that, like, there is that, that extreme polarization. Like, half the country doesn't trust the New York Times. Half the country doesn't trust um, Fox News. Right. And so... Um, What's sort of your take on, on that? Like, just given what you were saying a little bit ago about how fake news... The slant can be a problem, but people aren't really fabricating stories. Like, what what level of trust should people be having in New York Times and Fox News and CNN? I think I think we were talking about the reporting. We're talking about like the Fox News actual news segments, mm. not the. I mean, Bill O'Reilly's not on there anymore, but like that stuff. Mm. You know, that's like entertainment. That's been entertainment okay. for a long time uh, to like work people up and. You know, uh, and this could be a good segue to the intellectual dark web, but like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's entertainment, driving ratings, and 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 Rachel Maddow is the same thing, and um, so that I think people should take with a huge grain of salt because those are just advocacy entertainment outlets, and and that's it, or, or yeah. programs. But when we talk about like Fox News reports from different areas, when we talk about New York Times reports from different areas, those I mean I think are extremely high level of confidence. I mean everything, you know. There's only it's human nature. Right? There's, it's impossible to know that like everything is going to be factual. But what I can say is this: is that there's there's a strong intention to get the story right, um, and to accurately reflect what's going on. I mean, yeah, the reporters have agendas, but again, it's like, um, you know, is are there these like conspiracies to get things like move things forward in these news organizations? No, but are there people with experiences who see those experiences reflected? Uh, or want to see those experiences reflected in the content, yes. So I'd say it's a lot less nefarious and a more more just like everyday life. Yeah. You know, it's just sort of like people are people. So so let's get your take on the intellectual dark web. So are you um, are you suggesting that the intellectual dark web kind of emerged in response to like making Kelly shows and things like that, or um, am I reading too much between the lines there? No, I think that's, I don't know about Megyn Kelly in particular, but um, that sort of genre of thing, not her on NBC, like her on Fox News. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody watched her on NBC, but, uh, or if they did, they didn't like it. But um, I don't know if it, I don't know if that's the right response to it. I don't know that it, it reacted in response to that. I think it reacted, I think it's more of a reaction response to the other side of things, that like there's this whole intellectual through fair of ideas that they didn't feel that there was a space for. And so that's why, for instance, like with podcasts, 
they just skirted the traditional pathways of trying to get these ideas in front of people because there's direct ways to do it now, which is something that Trump has, has realized through Twitter, that like he doesn't need the media, this medium anymore, and he can just get these ideas directly in front of people. Not to compare at all, and I want to be super clear about this, I'm not comparing him to ISIS at all, but they, they both recognize the same thing because it used to be with journalists that you needed them, and like even when you go to these places, like journalists would be safe because you needed the journalists to get mm. your idea in front of people. Jeffrey Goldberg talks about this when he was in the Balkans. And I, I, th I don't remember if he felt um, threatened about this or if that was like the last time that journalists could be like fully safe in a conflict zone, but like it was like that they ne you needed to convince the journalist to get your story out. So you wouldn't kill a journalist, you'd try to co-opt the journalist. But with ISIS, you're starting to see the beginnings or the continuation of this idea that like actually we don't need Western media, we can just do this directly on Twitter, Facebook, social media, whatever it is. We can talk directly to the people, we don't have to put it through these like gatekeepers anymore. And so as a result, we can just like see these journalists as like easy targets and kill them. Um, and so again, I, I'm not comparing or putting them in the same box at all whatsoever, even close, but Trump is the same thing. He's like, I don't need the media anymore. I can just talk to people directly, even though he plays a funny game with, with the media, right? He's yeah. like, I hate the media, but listen to this. You know, <laughs> I hate Jim Acosta. I hate CNN, but let me call on Jim Acosta and let's drum up some, you know, some, uh, what do you call it? Popularity, some excitement, some focus on this, you know? And so it's a weird dance. You know, I hate the New York Times, but here, here's some access that nobody else has. Let me, you know, so, and, and the media, I mean, uh, we, has not figured out a way to handle it. To deal with it, you know, because this like shrill drumbeat of like, oh, Trump did this, Trump did this, Trump did this, Trump did this. I don't know that, that it, I mean, the midterms certainly show something that maybe it's starting to get through, yeah. but. Um, so Trump, ISIS, and maybe the intellectual dark web <laughs> are yeah. similar in using the direct. Direct communication. Direct outlet. Yeah. And I don't, I didn't have to use ISIS. I mean, there's countless examples of people that have been able to do this. Not, I mean, yeah. but ISIS is one of them. Um, so yeah, and so I think that they, that it's a reaction just to them feeling that there's not an outlet for their ideas. I know that Claire Lehman with Quillette felt that I, Claire Lehman Quillette in Australia felt like that, and she talks about it a lot. That mm -hmm. like basically she had these ideas. She's um was an academic down there, and she just felt like her ideas. And she says she was blacklisted by all these you know newspapers there, and like her ideas didn't conform to the sort of uh, intellectual liberal dogma, and that as a result there was not a space for it, which. Um, I, I can say that that does reflect my ex personal experiences, not because I've tried to like, well, yeah, and it has happened, like where you pitch an idea, you pitch a story and like it doesn't get in. You don't know why it doesn't get in, but you can think like, all right, maybe it had something to do with the angle or the thing. So that's her, uh, The Brett, I think Brett Weinstein's up in the, was in the Pacific Northwest, same thing. The guy at Google, um, who doesn't have a podcast, but he's also, so like, and the guy, the, the Weinstein got fired from the university up there for, again, like putting something out there that was like not part of the dogma. Jordan Peterson talks about this a lot about compelled speech in Canada. Ben Shapiro has his thing, Dave Rubin. And so I think it was just like, look, we're these people, we have these ideas, and there doesn't seem to be a space for it because we're not alt-right. We're not liberal dogma, you know, intellectual liberal dogma, if you can sort of whatever you want to call it. I'm sure there's a name for what that is, but I'll just call it that for now and leave it there. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think that, and then, and, and what you're seeing just because of the response to them and the reactions to them, there is a huge audience. There are a lot of people who, if they don't feel this way, are extremely interested in hearing these ideas being discussed and, and put out there. And I think that it's a very strong sort of like nerve to touch on that like, you know, we're not accepted by mainstream. We're not, we're, or, or we're not accepted by like these gatekeepers, these, you know, elitists and this yeah. and that, and we're being persecuted and we're 
being, you know, it's not, but we're pushing back and we're going to get our ideas out there. And um, with Jordan Peterson, I think that you're seeing that, and Ben Shapiro with every time he goes to talk somewhere and like the reaction, the shrill reactions to him going to talk and having safe spaces in this, in response to him, you know, it, it does show that they're not making this up. They're not like inventing fake controversies, that there is a great amount of resistance to them from um, whatever you want to call it, liberal dogma establishment, whatever it is. So. Yeah, yeah. The moral fashion, fashion policing is what I call yeah, it. Yeah, the suede denim secret police. It <laughs> happened. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, is the intellectual dark web, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more familiar with like the video podcast outlets for that. But, I mean, that's, that's a longer form, kind of like we're doing here. Um, it, would you consider that to be a form, I guess not of journalism, because it's not quasi-journalism, right? Because it's, it's not reporting just facts. It's certainly its own slant, but talking about current events and everything. Like, what's your take on it? I don't think I'd call them journalists. I don't think they call themselves journalists. I know, I'm pretty sure they don't call themselves journalists. Um, so they're just kind of their own yeah. thing? Yeah, I mean, I, you have them on that side. You have, like, on the left, like, Pod Save America the, with the Obama staff for uh, alums. So... I think they're more like analysts. I mean, first of all, Jordan Peterson is an academic. He's a doc. He's a right. um, you know in your field, I think. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, Dave Rubin. I and you call him like a, a Joe Rogan is a comedian slash podcast host. You call him like a host, I guess, like a like a radio yeah. host, but on a podcast. Um, Dave Rubin, oh, same Ben Shapiro, same Ben Shapiro. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know that I see them as that. I don't know if they see themselves as that. And but again, you talk about journalists and who's a journalist and who's not, and these distinctions have been blurred to such an extent that um, I think they're still meaningful. But um, I don't know. I, I, no, they are still meaningful. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll revise that. They are um, because again, when you go back to like the ethical standards and and the and the importance of adhering to those within traditional journalism versus like a Ben Shapiro or someone else that is not inherently tied to those same standards. Although, again, it's hard to paint them all with the same brush because Brett Weinstein, also academic, I hope it's Brett Weinstein, I think that's his name. He's got a brother, so they, and one of them I think is involved with the VC, but he was an academic, Jordan Peterson, same thing. So those come with their own inherent ethical standards. So, um. so I mean, it seems like a lot of this direct, direct um, to the public, connections that the intellectual dark web that Trump are using still are relying somewhat on the middleman of like Google, Facebook, Twitter, all that. And they've got like their identity checkmark system. So you had mentioned kind of during the, all the controversy around like Russian placed clickbait in, in Facebook. Um, I mean, they're right now positioned to decide what is and isn't fake news, more or less. There we go. This is a great, I like this one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts on that and like the future of the relationship between journalists and big companies like Google and Facebook? This is a great question. Um, so I just interviewed the CEO of one of the fastest growing um, social media communication platforms. And, I, and the article hasn't come out, so I don't want to, that's why I'm not mentioning the specific, but a big one. And what he said to me was basically that like, he's funny, he's like, this is the <laughs> fundamental, this is like the great challenge of our generation, right? Of like, how do you, how do you manage these social media platforms? Um, mm -hmm. I he's had enough. Can I go? 
So, um... He, <laughs> these dogs, man, they're, they're attention getters. Get back to it. You all right? So, um... What do you want to do? I don't know if we'll edit this out or if this will be like the, the key part of the, the, the video. The, the dog behaviors. Yeah. Yofi. So, um, right. So he said this is like the fundamental challenge of our generation is like these huge social media platforms and how people interact with them and what are the standards that we want for, for that, right? And he said like basically free speech. <laughs> <laughs> Free speed. Hold on. I'll, I'll back off. With it. All right. Go. What do you want to do? <laughs> I right. don't know. What do you think? Do you see the chew toy? Do you see it? Go, go, go. Here, look, get him off. It's a good break for him. Oh, hold on. Shemish, go. Go off. Go off. Go. Go. Good boy. Okay. <laughs> Right, so we're talking about like uh, social media platforms and speech on those platforms and the future of journalism on those platforms. So, um, right, so like I said, I interviewed the head of this really big, uh, you know, one of the fastest growing social media platforms, for, especially for younger people. Um, and what he said is that basically this is like the biggest challenge of our generation. And he said, like, look, I have my personal views on these things, but I don't necessarily want to put them on other people. But mm -hmm. at the same time, there's not an example for how we're supposed to manage or police this. And these, these ideas have not been challenged and we don't know. And that's the thing. Nobody knows. These are all novel, new, unique problems to a very large extent. And, um, but that's, you know, there's, there's some interesting, there's some interesting research. There's been some interesting reports on this kind of thing where it's like we pretend, you know, that like previously these platforms for legal reasons, I think, and for, um, also perhaps ideological reasons as well said basically like look we're we're not going to police anything we're just going to be free speech and anything that's on there is on there and we don't take any responsibility we're not a publisher we're a platform so anything goes and it, this reflects i think the early days of just like the internet of idea like this is like a free space for ideas but of course what happened as we can see in, in recent years is you have like fake news you have like hate groups being able to organize you have terrorist groups being able to organize and at some point in the last couple of years people you know they've realized that like a legal responsibility or an ethical responsibility to try to constrain somehow what is and is not on their platforms and when you do that and you start making those decisions um you know you think it's easy like all right like nazis and you know islamic fascist terrorist groups like those are out um but what happens when it's something that's like not quite reaching that level, but almost, and what happens when there's jokes, and what happens when this, and then it's a mess. And I don't have the answer, I don't think they have the answer, but I think as a society we need to understand that that's who we have de facto outsourced these decisions to, you know? Even like when you report, um, and there's a ton of debate about this online, a ton of anger, like, you know, groups that say like, all right, kill these people, or do this, or do that, and then you report it to Facebook or Twitter, and they just don't do anything. And Twitter's, I think, facing more animosity for this uh or even like we're supposedly like trump violates their terms of service but they leave mm -hmm. them on there you know and so I, I don't think they have the answer i mean based on the interview that i had with the ceo i don't think he, i mean he think he said like they don't he doesn't have the answer and it's sort of just like we'll see what happens and then respond to it but we as a, as a society need to understand that like that is who is deciding it is like mark zuckerberg um jack dorsey yeah um, Twitch would be, 
I don't know who's in charge. Like, it used to be Justin TV, and now it, you know. So, but anyway, so it, it's a it's a huge thing. And then as far as journalism goes, nobody knows. Like, how is that going to work out? How is it going to, you know, how is that going to impact trust in journalism? Because again, there was an interesting study that showed like when you had the New Yorker and BuzzFeed, and two stories from those outlets. That when somebody looks at the New Yorker story on the New Yorker website versus BuzzFeed on the BuzzFeed website, their levels of trust are highly skewed. But then when they see those two stories. Um, on Apple News, even with some, I think it was still with the logo of BuzzFeed, but it's both, they're accessing on Apple News, those levels of trust, like it levels, it out. levels out completely. So um, these are all, and these are like um, fascinating things to consider because they're business decisions, right? But then they're also content decisions and trust decisions. And what happens when you have the New York Times article next to um, Think Progress or Breitbart or, you mm -hmm. know, HuffPost, you know, things that are, then what? Or, or, you know, in the other example, like Wall Street Journal with Breitbart and um, The Blaze or whatever it is. And then it's like they're all in the same place. Yeah. And then it, I think it becomes harder to distinguish among them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what... I'm curious how... Like, what, how do big companies like Washington Post get to have their credibility in the first place? Is it just purely experience and circulation and being in the business for a long time? Um, and if we start to have these, you know, Twitter real checkmark systems on uh, news where people get their news, let's say Facebook, I know Facebook got rid of their news feed recently, but let's say Facebook, can newer companies like Politico, you were saying, come around and start or does it reduce the barriers of entry to journalism too much? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, I think Politico is a good example of one that has been able to do that. Um, again, in, a, in the Hollywood context, Deadline Hollywood. Um, but did Politico come around before or after there was sort of some of these verification systems in place? I think like on Twitter, you mean like, or, the just like, or like how, how old is Politico now? That's a good question. I don't know. Okay. Uh, I'm wondering if Politico was around before people really started to get concerned about fake news. Yes. Yes. So I'm wondering now that people are concerned about fake news and we're combining with that companies like Facebook needing to respond to the challenges that fake news has brought. If the barriers to entry into journalism and reporting are mm -hmm. going to become much higher and therefore just difficult to start a news company. I'm not sure. There's an example. There's a company called Cheddar. And Cheddar? Cheddar? Yeah. So Cheddar like is... Like cheese? Yeah. Okay. So called Cheddar. It's a, a guy, I think he was at BuzzFeed or something. And so he uh, started Cheddar. It's a fin It started off as like a financial reporting. Uh, I think it was like exclusively on OTT, like over the top, mm. um, like uh, an app on Apple TV. I think it was on Roku, I think. And then... It, went to all the other sort of like Apple TV and online and this and that. And they've been able to sort of do that. They, and considering like consistent growth and they, it's straight news reporting. And, um, you know, when is Cheddar at the level of the Washington Post? No, but are they seen? At, I mean, are people going to it? Are people watching it? And it's also like sort of like more, a lot of interviews, a lot of um, like rewriting stories from other outlets, things like that. So it's not, they're not playing the same ball game as the Washington Post. And so I think there's definitely space for those new outlets. Um, to emerge, I mean, to become at the level of the Washington Post or the New York Times, who knows? I mean, those, those are talking about like 100, 150, 200-year-old news organizations that, again, benefit from that trust and from that, 
um, from trust, from funding. I mean, an, an interesting example, I think, is Vice. If you're talking about like new outlets being able to like come on the scene and be trusted and respected. Um, and Vice is an interesting one because Vice's reporting is highly slanted to the left, but nevertheless, they've still been able to run themselves up to, I think, like a four or five billion dollar valuation and have a weekly daily show on HBO and a weekly show on HBO and like be in front of all these, these different, beyond these different outlets in front of all these people and on these like, again, like HBO and um, partnerships with The Guardian and like, and part and doing collabs with these other sort of like mainstream organizations. So it's an interesting pathway to reach that level of like respectability from a magazine that was like punk rock, drug, sex, rock and roll, like really out there and then to sort of like bring it in. Um, and it's interesting also how quickly they've been able to do it when they started reporting news because in page one, which is a documentary about the New York Times, David Carr, who's a great um, mm -hmm. uh, reporter there and, and columnist on, for media, interviewed Shane Smith and one of the, I think, Sharush uh, Alvi um, about that and like they, they, they really went at it and, and the advice people were like, you know, we did this crazy stuff in Liberia and you guys aren't doing this and that and David Carr was like, like hold the fuck on. Like, we've been doing this and sending people into harm's way for like all this time and you guys just show up in this net and the advice guys completely backed off. And since that time, really tried to become more serious in the reporting, got a bunch of people from NBC News, got a bunch of journalists from other outlets and really run it up to become um, not, I mean, would people look at Vice in the New York Times in the same way? No, but do people look at Vice and be like, wow, this is really cool reporting. This is really interesting. Like, I trust it. Yeah, I think they do. So I don't know that people want to become the New York Times anymore. You know, it's like sort of the old man on the block. Uh, I think they'd want to become more like Vice, more like a video first, more like cool, younger, on the spot, you know, organization like that, which, um, although they've had their challenges, but I think probably that's something closer to the model than okay. the other. And in general, is video becoming more popular than print? It's becoming more popular than print. I don't. I don't know the, the, the metrics on that and the numbers. I know that there was a study from that Oxford Reuters uh, partnership that said that actually Western, or in the United States at least, they want to see less news video, which was interesting because you have all these news organizations talking about we need to shift more to video, we need to focus on video, 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 video. But that, that the readers and, and, and the consumers of their products actually want less video because it's more um, top-down, like, all right, you have to watch this for three minutes. You know, you can't like scrub mm. to, you know, the videos don't really you work can't like skim. it. Skim. Skim, yeah, versus like a news, it's like, all right, you sort of pick what you want and engage with it and then leave. So I think that there's great opportunities for video um, for specific things. Have you things. noticed? I, well, of course you have. I just recently noticed um, on some of these, I think it was, was it Wired or Forbes? They're starting to do like these three minute clips that are like complementary to some longer article that goes mm -hmm. more into depth. I'd never seen that before. So that's just like a new video thing, right? Or how long has that been around? Maybe I've just missed out. It's been around for a while, but I think it's certainly ramping up okay. to a very large extent. Um, and I think that, that the new ideas about how to have those two things interact has also improved or at least evolved from, from the beginnings of it. And so I think that that's probably closer to what the model is for most organizations. It's like, like you're saying, like the complimentary, like here I've read this thing and like here's some mm -hmm. news footage that like is gonna go into like a different angle or deeper or sort of like support it versus like replace it. Mm -hmm. Because you think about even just like how you access news like on your phone or something like you know you just when you can you kind of take a look and did it oh this looks interesting whatever and then versus like all right now i have to sit and watch this for three minutes and i might not care about this in this level of depth but if you can sort of choose then it's maybe more valuable 
Um, I want to ask a little bit too, you're planning on going heavier into videography mm. and cinematography as well? Uh, yep. Okay, so, um, and you've done some documentaries up to date, correct? Yeah, so there's been a lot of like, uh, uh, like news video, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know, they're not documentaries, they're like news video features. And okay. then there's a, a feature-length documentary that I shot when I was in Israel that has been in post-production for a while. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I personally believe that, you know, the, that the, the strength of video is not necessarily in these two to three minute clips, but in longer form things. And when you're talking about complex issues like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, like um, you talk about like surfer gangs, like the one story that you brought up, um, where that it can be more instructive in a sense than like saying, all right, this side is killing that side, or this side wants this, or this side wants that. Because I don't know how much, when you're really trying to understand an issue, really trying to like share a story, that I think people connect and relate much more to like the human elements of it. And you can do this in writing, certainly, and they do it all the time. Great work being done all the time for these sort of things. But I think a more visceral experience and a more um, powerful experience is when you can actually jump into this and see it in, in these longer form video outlets, which of course is like where VR is going and how VR is trying to like close these gaps where like you f drop in, in a VR environment into like a refugee camp in Greece mm. or into Africa. And, and like then that becomes a way more sort of like connecting experience than just um, reading a 5,000 word feature on it, which again, there's a time and place and advantages to both. But for me, I think that especially when you look at like the history of um, just the history of America, I don't know how else to say it, but like, the, the video representations of things, movies, documentaries, more so like movies, like that in some weird way becomes like how people see these things. Like World War II is not the reports from the New York Times, it's Saving Private Ryan. You know, yeah. Vietnam is not, again, like, I mean, Vietnam is interesting in like the, in the wake of Vietnam because the Pentagon Papers and, and things like that certainly play a huge role in people's understanding of those conflicts, but like Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, like, mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's just, in a weird way, those Zero Dark Thirty for the bin, La the bin Laden raid, like, in some way, like, that becomes sort of the official history for most people. Hmm. And so, as you shift into making movies, is your hope to do some of those works? Or are you wanting to steer into full-on fiction? Um, I think both. I mean, the things that are sort of like most immediately in front of me are um, more of like the unscripted docu-series, like eight episodes of like a documentary um, sort of stories. But for me, it's it's less about um, even like, forget like the medium, uh, it's just the story. It's like, what is the story going to dictate here? Like, what, mm -hmm. how does this story need to be told? Like, what is the right way to frame this or to, to tell it? And is it, in, is there, if like, if we're talking about like a story that's actually out there and it's unscripted and you just go out and shoot it and make it and do it, like amazing you know but in some cases it's not the best way to go about it or it's not possible to tell the story that you want to tell in those in that sort of a format or context because of just inherent limitations or access or um timing or whatever it is and then and then it becomes a scripted proposition but um i would say all the above so um one of the news videos that you created was on the surfing turf wars or gangs is Tell, tell me about that. Right, so uh, 
so this is a good example of what we were talking about before in terms of like when you get a tip and how do we verify it and, and how mm. do we do it. And so I was saying that it's like a little bit different because in some cases like the official capacity and it's like offices and mm. you have to investigate and find sourcing and documents and this and that. But in other cases, you'll get a tip and you can just go to the place and like see how it manifests itself. So as a mm. surfer, I'd always heard about this one uh, surf spot that was like really what they call localized. So it means like the people who are from that area basically don't let other people surf there. Um, and a lot of places have some version of this, especially in, in busier, more crowded surf spots around the world. But there was one that I'd always heard about in like just south of Los Angeles that was like supposed to be the worst. And it's in a really wealthy area called uh, Palos Verdes. Okay. And so um, it was always weird, like, okay, it's a really wealthy area and then it's supposed to be like the worst of the surfing gangs. And there's like a history of like assaulting journalists and like other felonious assaults and like um, just violence and terrible. Like to what extent? really like beating the hell out of people <laughs> really? yeah like beating the hell out of people uh slashing their tires wow. working their cars throwing their stuff in the water um i mean it's oh weird it's like i started I like laugh, beating but... people up to like throwing stuff in the water but like it, uh, uh, serious stuff and, like one of the people who was eventually charged in one of these things like had been associated with uh, another really serious uh, assault and battery of someone at a baseball game i think it was and so wow. um these guys take this stuff pretty seriously and it's like this joking thing about oh, laid back cool surfer hippies this and that it's not really like that. I mean, it can be like that in places, again, where it's like less crowded. It's like supply and demand and, and battle over resources. But like people, they feel like this association and they start to like identify with the surfing spot. Like, mm. um, so anyways, that's sort of the background and the context. I'd heard tips like this is the worst one. This is the worst one. Da, da, da. I got a colleague. Uh, this was for The Guardian. So we went down there. He's Irish. He doesn't surf. And we just sort of like I brought my surfboard. And what, the idea was like to just check it out, like to see and like go down there and say like, all right, is it really as bad as everybody says? Mm -hmm. And usually what happens in situations like that is you go and you paddle out and then people will react to you based on how you behave in the water. So if you're what they call respectful, like if you wait your turn basically for the waves, then it'll be okay. People look at you kind of like weird, like askance, but um, it won't go much beyond that. And I've faced that before in Hawaii, Australia, California, lots of places like but here, like we walk down this cliff, and you have to understand like, the, the way it is. Like it's a cliff and a little bay, Lunata Bay, and then there's one basically one way in, one way out. It's a goat trail. It's really thin, this and that, and there's like only a few places to park. It's like a residential, really nice residential area, and there's like these guys, middle-aged guys, and they have like radios and they're like talking to each other and like or cell phones and like, oh, he parked here, he parked there. Watch him. We walk down there, and right when we walk down there, people, this guy was like you guys lost or something like you're in the wrong place like you guys aren't from here this and that and um basically we so we saw just as two people like what happens to people who try to go down there and then it got even better because people were threatening and this and that but like so just to be just to make sure i'm understanding they're why why do they care about their turf because there's just not enough waves to ride as they're surfing yeah okay. yeah so there's like x amount of waves for y amount of people and what they would say is like we're defending the place from outsiders who want to come in and make it dirty and defile it and pollute and this and that, like what you have in Malibu. So in Malibu, okay. in Surfrider Beach, you have a situation where it's really easy to access the wave and people can see the wave from the, from the highway. You can see it from this road too, the, the wave here, but it's the ease of access and sort of like, and so it's crowded as heck. You know, I mean, it's really crowded and it is kind of like dirty. And so you can see 
and that's like what they'll say, but that's like the cop-out answer because it's a public resource that everyone's supposed to be able to use. And like, if you don't want people to use it to such an extent, there are legal ways to go about doing that. Make it one hour parking, make it, you know, do whatever you want to do, but it's not. And it ties in because what ended up happening is my car ended up getting vandalized and we went to the police station and the police were like, yeah, we know who they all are, but if you don't like it, we're not going to do it. Like, if you don't like it, don't go down there. So the community is working with the police to keep people out. They don't want people Whoa. in their community. And that was like, and the LA Times followed up. Uh, uh, every major newspaper followed up on the story. We shot this video. It became international news. The Coastal Commission got involved. They filed, the two people I think filed federal lawsuits that, I don't know the status of them at this point. They had a little clubhouse down there, like a fort or whatever, built out of rocks and um, wood and this and that, like where they hung out. And the Coastal Commission got rid of that because uh, it was in violation of building permits and so on and so forth. But um, I think, I don't know what the latest is. I don't know if people have, like, if they've opened it up, opened it up or not. I doubt it because the, the uh, attention is kind of focused elsewhere. But um, it was just an example of a story. It was like, you hear all these rumors, you see all this stuff. Everyone, they know they've acted with impunity for like 30, 40 years or whatever it is or more. And we just kind of went down there to like see for ourselves kind of thing. And so... So what happened once you got there and they're asking you if you're lost? And... No, no, they weren't asking. Like, to be clear, oh. they were like threatening. They were like, okay. you guys lost? Like, you sure you want to be here? You shouldn't be here if you, you know, don't come. And, it's like, guys were like, don't. and it's in the video people can see. It's like, don't fucking come down here, man. And there's way worse and stuff that we didn't end up including in the final edit, um, which is a good example of how editors can be involved in the process because mm. I, we had made this longer video and then my editor at that time just like, chopped it up and then put it out there so and it was effective I mean it, it honed in on like the meat of the issue but um uh yeah just like but it was interesting because they were all very like in a very American legalistic way they like didn't cross the line you know they were like you know they're like bad things are going to happen if you go out there and I and we tried to say like are, what, are you going to assault us if we go out there are you going to throw us up like no I'm not I'm not saying I'm going to do it man but like Someone else is going to this and that and blah blah. blah. And so there's like all sorts of like, and then we understood that like sometimes if they feel outgunned, so to speak, then they'll try to get somebody to assault them and then sue that person. So it's this whole like legal weird lawsuit. Like we're tough guys, but within the confines of of the law kind of thing. But they feel emboldened because some of the people surfing down there allegedly are like uh, judges and lawyers and people in that community. There's a, a wow. cop from another community, I think El Segundo, who was there and he got run over with a surfboard and got sliced and cut and the whole thing. And they're like, well, it was by accident. And it's really hard to prove in those situations, oh, this was on purpose, you know? And, and it's surfing, so it's again, it's not taken as seriously because it's like, ah, oh, they're just surfers joking around, whatever, this and that. But they take it pretty seriously and people have gotten hurt down there. And it's a, again, it's a public resource and um, that's why The Guardian was interested in doing it, I think. And that's, I think, why there was such public interest of like, guys acting like this, middle-aged guys, mostly white, um, rich, and hoarding this land area, which they called, like, like this is a sacred land for us. And, 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 and we learned that, like, for them it's like a gang. Like, you have to get, like, you, you, you start when you're young and you paddle out there and you get beat up and you can't, you know, surf where you want and you have to wait yeah. your turn. It takes, like, decades to do that and then finally, like, earn your place in the line. Mm. And so from their standpoint, again, they're like, someone's just going to come out here and I had to get beat up and I had to get treated like crap and then you're just going to come out here and paddle and catch waves and like, no, we're not going to do that. And even to the extent that like, even if you know somebody there, it's not even a situation like that. You can't have somebody vouch for you because we ask people, we're like, well, what if I paddle out with you? And he's like, no man, it's not like Facebook. You can't just add friends. Like, So, uh, so were you fearful at all for your safety when you 
I mean, on that story? kind of like it seemed like a little bit heavy. I mean, you're down there isolated. There's no like person that can come and help you in this net. My, my guy who I went with, my colleague Rory, he'd actually gotten kidnapped in Iraq. Oh, wow. Uh, by uh, Muqtad al-Sadr's group. And he'd been, I think, for a few days. And uh, I kind of turned to him at one point as a joke. And I was like, man, this is like, this is like, uh, how is this compared to Iraq or something? And this yeah. and that. And he's like, well, at least in Iraq, there were people with guns on our side. This and, that. Like, and, and you know, so it was like, in retrospect, you know, it was not a war zone. I don't know how much physical danger we were actually in. Probably, you know, not much. Although they'd like throw rocks at people and, and this and that. So, wow. Um, it, did, it didn't feel good. I can tell you that and uh and it's just this weird like spooky almost tim burton-esque like suburb gone to hell sort of feeling there of like so bizarre stepford wives bro but like bad vibes and then it's it's a stunning area it's a stunning area and then it's like you have that but then you have this other side to it and um then there was this internal debate in that community talking about do we want our community to be associated with this like gang behavior? It's hurting our property values. And then the other side was like, well, do we really want outsiders coming in and like thinking that they can just do whatever they want here, hmm. uh, doing whatever they want, being like in public land? Yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, it's um, yeah. I mean, it's a debate in California, I guess, that has pretty much been decided everywhere except for this place called uh, Hollister Ranch, which is sort of like the last bastion of like a protected private piece of coast that people just can't access freely. Uh, there's a billionaire here south of um, where we're sitting now, forgot his name, uh, where he tried to cut off access because he had this huge plot of land. He's like, no, this is private. We're not going to have an e uh, a way to access it. And I think, I'm pretty sure the uh, California Supreme Court said basically that um, you have to, or it's going back and forth. I think the last thing was like that you have to, so. Wow, that's wild. I just, yeah, you wouldn't think of surfers as being violent and also just you wouldn't think of going to the beach as like a scary thing like compared to your time in Israel I mean that yeah. <laughs> or someone's time in Iraq yeah, you know, yeah kidnapped in Iraq so yeah. like uh yeah I mean but I think that it's a it's a really good point because um I mean kind of going back to where we started about about Israel and about that conflict is and the role of news in sort of like portraying these different areas like you know this area Palos Verdes is like portrayed before me and Rory is this like idyllic, safe community and everything's good and it's all cool. Same thing with Thousand Oaks, by the way. Um, and the reality is like Israel's a war zone, right? And Israel's terrible and this and that. But the reality is so much more complex and nuanced. And, uh, and going back to like the video and, and the ability to sort of engage with those things. Um, and I think it sometimes takes that because there's been such an onslaught of like one narrative in Israel and the Palestinian territories mm -hmm. of something. And then it's you go there and it's something so completely and radically different than what you expect. I mean... Um, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to do these shows about things that take place there because so, so often people see it as like this is a religious conflict and on one side are, are Jews, Israelis, and on the other, even though um, something like a fifth of Israelis are actually Muslim and Arab and the other side are Palestinians and these are the fault lines and it's you're either on one side or the other. But the reality is that there's a tremendous amount of conflict within Palestinian society between the different factions and the amount of factionalization is incredibly complex and I mean you can see in Syria for instance that even there like Sunni and Shia are, are killing the hell out of each other um, and so within Palestinian society the fault line is not Sunni and Shia it's you know Hamas and Palestinian Authority PLO and Islamic mm -hmm. Jihad and elements of Al-Qaeda and ISIS and this and that but um, you know you have countless examples of how this plays out and something that's um, you know like in Gaza like Hamas was like throwing Palestinian Authority people like off of buildings when they were there, and they 
they're constantly duking it out to like maintain supremacy there and like to maintain their sense of control. And, and a lot of times, again, like the Israelis are sort of this like boogeyman, but for them, they're within their society, like they're far more concerned about like this guy over there who I hate, who now I'm going to use that hatred to sort of like benefit myself by saying like, you're not getting the water that you deserve, your city should get. And it's because of some third cause. You know? Yeah, so. you had mentioned earlier that it's less about, it seems like it's now less about religion and more about self-interest. So what do you, what do you mean? Like people are just leveraging the confusion to get a valued resource, like the water you were just talking about, or? Not, not necessarily the water, um, money. Okay. <laughs> like the, the amount of aid that the Palestinian Authority, and to back up, the Palestinian Authority was the government that was created in the wake of Oslo, the Oslo Agreements, uh, which okay. was, uh, you know, in the 90s, early 90s, 93, I think, um, that created sort of a form, like a semi-formal agreement between the Palestinians and the Israelis, with Yasser Arafat being the leader of the Palestinians, and his group called PLO, became the de facto Palestinian authority. And they became the government of these Palestinian cities, basically. And there was this recognition sort of on both sides. And, um, but instead of that evolving and developing into a more formalized agreement and there being peace, you mm-hmm. know, it devolved. And you have what you have now, which is just separation basically between the two peoples. And, you know, a lot of times this is misconstrued as, you know, it's like, this is apartheid. This is some mm. sort of like a regime that's separation on ethnic or racial lines or something, which is weird because something like half of Israelis come from Arab countries. My girlfriend's Yemen, you know, from Yemen. So it's strange that this has become a racial thing. But, um, mm. and again, a fifth of Israelis are Arab. One of them serves on the Supreme Court of Israel. Um, they're able to do exactly the same things as Israelis, if they choose, they can even serve in the army. I'm talking about Arab Israelis. Um, a lot of them choose not to, and they're not forced to. Um, but then going back to what happened on the other side, so you had all of these, this like system that had been set up, and then it devolved, and then what it turned into is this sort of like extremely corrupt situation where it's like when you go to Ramallah, the place where now Mahmoud Abbas, who's the leader, lives, and it's, it's a brilliant palace, and it's huge in the sand. Like, in the shadow of that are these refugee camps. Mm-hmm. But then next to those, it's like Microsoft, KFC, this bank, that bank. Like, the center of Ramallah looks like a European city. There, Ramallah, which is a Palestinian city, is nicer than many Israeli cities in, in much of it. Again, you have, your, you have your refugee camps, you have other parts that aren't quite as nice, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's complex of why it stays like that. Because, for instance, if things would evolve, if there would be a more formalized peace agreement, Maybe that aid wouldn't flow in quite the same way. Maybe, hmm. you know, those people who are in power wouldn't have quite so much power anymore. Mahmoud Abbas, the PLO guy now, the PA guy, is deeply unpopular amongst his own people. And so the dance to stay in power is such that, you know, he sort of has to play both sides. And the fault lines that are then created as a result of the tenuousness of his hold on power, I think, explained far more about what we're seeing today than this typical... Jews versus Muslims and having that be the explanation. Do you, I mean, do people, do Israelis and Palestinians understand that? Like, do they view it that way? Many of them do. Many of them do, but it's like everywhere else where it's like, you know, becomes a visceral sort of like thing and fear is then mixed into it and, and just feelings and like, it's hard to, to I mean, even, the way I'll say it is like, I think that on some level they do, but on the other level, they're like, I don't know that we can, we being Israelis or Palestinians can afford to engage with it on that level because they're throwing rockets at us and they're bombing us with their airplanes and they're setting up 
checkpoints. And then, well, we're setting up checkpoints so you don't come into our cities and kill us in, in cafes and pizza places anymore. And, and so there's just like cycle of distrust that feeds and, and flows into one side to the other, one side to the other. You know, and like, and then again, but again, I don't want to have like an equivalence because on the one hand you have on the one side, like when someone, a Palestinian goes to a cafe and blows himself up, they name a street after him mm. and becomes like a hero and he gets, or if they try to do it and they go to jail, they get paid every month by the government, by the Palestinian government versus the Israelis. When you have, for instance, um, a, a, a Jewish terrorist who went in and did something, he's, he's absolutely not, he's, he's, he's a pariah. He's put completely on this and, and, and it's, a, it's a dishonor. In a sense, so the way that these things are being portrayed are different. The Palestinians would say that, like, this is their recourse to trying to create something. The Israelis would say, no, it's not. We offered you all of this land, and you didn't want it, and you didn't want to take it because ultimately, and I think this explains it the best. Uh, the the Palestinian guide who I had when I went into those areas one of the times, he I looked at him and I said, look, like, clearly you see these Israelis are here. You're not gonna. You know, like this is the situation. You're not gonna, you're not gonna, a, t a suicide bombing is not gonna force them to leave. And he said, Yeah, but how long did your people wait for a, a country? And I said, oh, I'm near about 2,000 years. He said, Okay, we've only had to wait 60 something. So that's the timeline that, that people are operating on over there. And the two sides, like these, many of the Palestinians truly do not believe that the Israelis have any place, that the Jews have any place there, or certainly not as a ruling people with sovereignty like almost every other people. So, and then the Israelis say, like, all right, you know, they do or they don't, but, like, they're trying to kill us, and they hate us, and they're, you know, they won't even talk to us, basically, and it becomes a capital crime. So this is, like, the starting point, and it's, like, it seems a lot of times like it's mutually irreconcilable, you know? So what would be your ideal, it, it sounds, are you ever planning on doing um, a video or a video series or some sort of a format to document that complexity and if so like what's the right format excuse me so the answer is yes um there's a there's one show in development and i think that it, that it's um by trying to do it by by a third party so showing what would it be like for an american to drop themselves into the middle of the situation and to, to then expose these different fault lines and to show the, the differences of what versus the expectation versus what actually happens. And I think that it's maybe it's something like that, but the question I think becomes, who is it for? Like, is it for people outside of there mm -hmm. to understand the situation or is it for people there to understand the situation better amongst themselves? And I think there's maybe a way to do both, um, but as an American, my goal is to do it for an American audience because okay. I'm an American and... Um, How would you do it? Are you planning like one of those vantage point kind of... <laughs> To, to, be, to be shared at a later date because uh, oh, okay. it's in development. But okay. um, I, I think we have a pretty unique way of doing it that really cuts to the, the meat of the issue, the heart of the issue, and does it in a way that, that uh, hasn't been shown before, hasn't been seen before. And, and I think shows a lot of the things that, I'm, that I've been talking about, just about that you know, someone could go there and think that they're going to be, that the enemy, so to speak, right, is the Palestinians writ large. But then they find that, oh, wait, you know, I met this really cool guy at the shop in Jerusalem and he seems cool. But then my landlord is a jerk and he's Israeli and Jewish. And so maybe my actual, like, the person on a daily basis that I'm interacting with, maybe that's more of, like, more relevant to me than these, like, greater, larger scheme of, of things, which um, is a fascinating thing to consider, especially when you talk about journalism stuff like yeah we create these narratives we we try to show the big picture story a lot of times and to understand but and it explains it on one level but 
when you're talking about what it's like for the everyday person, you know, and your average everyday Israeli is not worried about getting blown up in a cafe or getting shot or, or stabbed or something like that. They're worried about like their rent. They're worried about traffic. Yeah. They're worried about their test coming up in school. Um, until, of course, they have to go to the army for three years, then they're worried about that. And from the Palestinian side, um, day-to-day life, when there's not a war, when there's not conflict, when there's not in a crackdown, so to speak, on increasing security by the Israelis, um, it's, it's the same everyday job, economy, life, work. And I don't want to go so far as then to extend it, like I said before, like everybody wants the same thing. I don't think that everybody does want the same thing, but there are certainly common points, like a Venn diagram, so to speak. <laughs> so I think it's safe to say that everybody wants to have a job or income or the comfortable living situation. So yeah. um, I, I'm pretty sure that So you're trying to extends. capture and portray that through your series. Ideally, ideally. But I, really the series, yeah, it, it's going to be a, a part of it. Um, but then also obviously it's just like, the it's it comes always back to character it comes back to people it comes back to their experiences so i want it to be like that sort of the setting that's what's being reflected and that's sort of like what you get along with it but really these are in the ultimate or hopefully be stories about uh there's probably four or five main characters their journey their experience as they go through and and show and and see that what they expected and what most people expect out of that region out of that area is not what they get and i think that's a you want to talk about like a big rule or a big thing that's consistent across everything over there i think that's what it is that like nothing is is quite what it appears to be or as simple as it appears to be or or even yeah like there's not a whole lot of getting what you expect to get for better and worse and and again like you might expect a war zone but you get people partying until 5 (laughs) a.m so and does the does the series have a name yet Yes, it's called Enlisted. Enlisted. Which kind of gives away a little bit about what it is, but... Um, Hopefully not, not too much. Yeah, hope, but, uh, but not... Uh, it's, not what, it's not what it, it seems to a large degree, okay. just even based on the name, but it, it's a hint. So. And when is Enlisted, what's the timeline for it? When is it going to come out? Hopefully soon. Hopefully really? soon. Hopefully soon, but I, you know, again, like, even Enlisted reflects the realities of life over there because what I expected with it in terms of the timeline is not what I got. Okay, but so. what, so soon is vague. Soon is vague. <laughs> is, uh, is soon, like, a matter of months or a matter of, like, the next couple of years or? Hopefully it'll be, like, in the next year. We are still looking for uh, another partner. So if someone's watching this and they're interested in this sort of milieu and they want to support interesting journalist-based work in this field. We are open uh, to an extent to engaging with those partners. We do have a big partner, a big piece of this whole thing locked in, and so we're just sort of waiting for the last piece, and, uh, and then we'll be ready to go. We're just waiting uh, to close some of the, uh, the business side part of it. Cool. Noah, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for the conversation. Thank you so much for um, telling me all about the ins and outs of journalism and putting up with some of my naive questions on everything from journalism to Israel. Um, I've really enjoyed my time with you. Thank you. And thank you for having me on. And thank you for the, like I said, uh, touching on before, just like from the academic standpoint that you are, that you're coming from, it it opens up new questions and new ideas. um, And and for me to even look at things that I hadn't uh, considered before. So thank you. Awesome. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.